We're back! We're back! It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. It's an improvement. Yeah! The last time we did this, last week, we were in a strange gray zone uh, between election night and the announcement of the uh, winner, uh, who's Joe Biden, on Saturday. So it was this uh, sort of terrifying limbo. Now we get to live through a different limbo. Yeah. <laughs> where, where, where the Republicans and Trump are having a stage... Like a like a pretend coup, so that they don't offend uh, Trump voters too much that they decide to, uh, I don't know, vote for like. Uh, they're trying to you know, raise Joe money Stein. for the Senate. Yeah, they're trying to raise money for the Senate races in Georgia, and the way they're doing it is by, uh, I guess, like casting doubt on the democratic process as an idea. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's cool. It's a bold gambit, and as somebody who respects gamblers and people who are out there just having fun slinging it around it's farvian and i like that uh i don't mean to make you more uneasy but uh we have a guest this week and our guest what uh, is uh one of the uh most hardcore interviewers on the planet it's the new yorker's own isaac chotner how you doing isaac good thanks for having me thank you now are you gonna put the screws to us this week or do we get to put the screws to <laughs> you I thought you were going to ask me questions about uh, sports and politics. Yes, that's right. We were. We were. going to ask you. But in a tough way. It's I, gonna, it, we're still going to put the screws to you. It's just going to be about, like, Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yes, it's going to be. We're going we're gonna to ask you all the hard questions about Ryan Fitzpatrick and Tua. And whether there are no or not, easy ones. Yeah, there are no easy ones, yeah. <laughs> we're also, uh, I, did, I did ask before we started recording, I did ask Isaac if I could ask him about Jeffrey Tubin's Zoom dick. They say he didn't really know anything about it and probably wouldn't say anything about it. So I'm just putting that on the record that we did have a discussion about the Zoom dick <laughs> that was very, very brief and inconsequential. Isaac, do you have anything to add to that? I do not, but thank you for bringing it up. There we go. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think we can said, all agree that it was the right choice to bring it up. Well, because people would have said, you got a guy from the New Yorker. Why didn't you ask about the dick? And I would have said, <laughs> well, I would have said that would have been a huge oversight as a professional penis journalist. It's my job to investigate all penises that tell a story, so I had to do that. Uh, Isaac, can I ask you some questions about the election? Please. Yes. Uh, how are you feeling right now? You feel okay about everything? Uh, you know, I guess I felt better than I did a week ago. I still feel a little angsty. Um, I think I had a dawning realization uh, yesterday or the day before. We're, I guess we're talking Wednesday, um, eight days after the election, that we're going to sort of have Trump in our lives maybe for a longer time than I had envisioned. Uh, not that I envisioned him completely disappearing, but thought of him just doing rallies for four years and, you know, whatever else about the state of the country that, that just uh, brought me low. Yeah. yeah it sucks. I, I felt like over the weekend, particularly when they announced it and the parties broke out and stuff and, and like Republicans started dissing themselves from, from Trump, they stopped doing that and walked it and went back to him sort of this week um, but during that, I was like, okay, well, he's being sort of erased from the collective consciousness by pretty much everybody. Everybody was throwing him under the bus. And it was sort of nice. And I was like, okay, I don't have to worry about this piece of shit ever again. And then Monday, um, you know, that was when, like, Barr announced that he was going to, like, do whatever he does. And then, like, Mitch McConnell, like, it still sucks that Mitch McConnell is – Alive, much less in charge of anything. Hey, uh, come on. That's a sitting U.S. Senator, Drew. Yeah, Show so a little he, respect. So he was like, oh, well, the, the results are prelu preliminary and doing all his garbage Mitch McConnell shit that just made me want to tear my own skin off. 
So that I was feeling bad about that, but then like I'm settled into the zone where I'm like, okay, it's a pretend coup for campaigning because that's great politics. Yeah. No, it is. I'm with Isaac though on the idea that like this is that like I had sort of hoped that we could move um, into a not like a post-Trump thing because it's like he's never not going to have been president. You know what I mean? Like there's yeah. we're going to be reckoning with the fact that this should happen for the rest of our lives. It's just also like, you know, the idea that we're now going to just like steer back into because he's basically all they've got, it seems like. I mean, that's like he's the only candidate that Republican voters really care about. And there's no one that's like him or that's going to give their voters the same sort of thrill. So like, yeah, he's going to do rallies and he's going to raise money and he's going to be like, this guy is a candidate I approve of and this guy's a cuck. And that's going to be <laughs> fucking four year, more years of that, even if he's not. I mean, it'll be great that he's not making decisions, but like, boy, he sure isn't going to go away. It doesn't feel like. Isaac, do you agree with all that? Yeah. You know, I was thinking um, back in the day we were we, we would have these conversations about whether we should just kind of ignore the president's Twitter feed and ignore the kind of crazier aspects of his personality, because focusing on them obsessively would, you know, uh, be counterproductive or n not really what matters. But it seems like the sort of it of his Twitter feed well, is going to take over the party in the next four years. Seems like it's kind of important to focus on. Yeah, it's hard because I always wanted to, and I think I think people, particularly over the past year, pretty much ignored his tweets. And even even during the election, when he was like, you know, stop the fraud, or like, you know, or like his his idiot kid yesterday was like, Minnesota vote, <laughs> like <laughs> like it, it clearly clearly scheduled the tweet for the wrong week and stuff like that, and like. And it was just sort of like everyone just being like, whatever, what the fuck. But it, but it, but then it became clear that like he's kind of the only person they have who like who gets all the like, you know, all the not so closeted fascists in that party. And apparently there are seventy million of them, very very amped up and juiced up, like in a way that they're not going to get for like Nikki Haley. So it's like it's this weird conundrum that they're stuck in. And I love that they're stuck in it. It's quite a delight. Unfortunately, they, uh, they're they not, like, turning over the fucking keys as a result, which is a yeah. problem. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. it's pretty – reading the GSA, GSA stuff the last few days has been sort of enraging. Um, I, you know, just, uh, just seeing on Twitter and seeing news articles and op-eds about how reaching out to Trump voters and understanding them, which, you know, people can have opinions on one way or the other, but to sort of have that conversation going on at the same time that – no one in the Republican Party essentially is acknowledging Biden even one is uh, especially enraging. That's been one of my favorite uh, of the Isaac Chotner bits, the famous Isaac Chotner bits that we see online right. are your like respectability posts, like the kind of the tweets that you do in the voice of like a like the way that like the New York Times as an institution has an opinion on politics that is like independent of all of its uh, actual reporters where they're like one thing that's very important at this moment and then this is like some unimportant thing <laughs> like <laughs> phrased in the most pompous possible way like i had sort of hoped that the idiocy of not just you know of the president or the presidency but that like to see like how this all played out over the course of four years and how undignified it's you know end is shaping up to be you would think that that would maybe end uh, that particular affectation. And yet, like, it it seems like we're still muddling through that, even as, like, you know, news networks uh, cut away from his rallies or whatever. Yeah, it's uh, it's wild. I, I mean, I do think, you know, uh, to give to give credit where it's due, I, you know, 
as someone who tried to write a lot about what I perceived as the failures of the media in 2016, I, I, I do think that if, uh, if you were in 2016 and you saw the way this election was covered in a bunch of different ways, you would have been shocked at how much better it was covered, um, even if, you know, the flaws still reveal themselves. I agree. I, I do think it's actually it's actually sort of shocking. And, you know, in some ways, I think Trump has been so bad and so crazy and so dishonest that he made it easier for the media. But um, but, yeah, no, it's, I, I do think there's a there's a huge, huge gap. Yeah. The fact that they cut off that non-concession speech of his. Because they were just like, look, he's lying. We can't show you this. This is like really awful. And then both uh, Jake Tapper and Anderson Cooper just lit into the piece of shit that night and just saying, like, like Mary Anderson Cooper was like, he's on, he's like a yellow turtle on his back in the hot <laughs> sun. Like, he had a great, it was great. It was very poetic. I was like, oh my God. I mean, I've never been a huge Anderson Cooper fan and don't, don't love watching him, but. If you go back to some of his early interviews with Trump in 2015, I mean, they are they are wild how bad they are. Yeah, well, they were reaching. They were still reaching into his presidency to try to, like, like to do the work that he himself was unwilling or unable to do in terms of, like, making it a fit with the institution and the guy that was in that office. You know, that, like, he gave that sort of – the one I always go back to – I wrote about this a while back, but it really, like, sort of stayed with me, that first State of the Union – where he, you know, does what presidents do in the State of the Union, where you kind of just do like a speed run of heroes before you wrap up with your your big applause stuff. And the it was like a army ranger that had been killed in some idiotic raid that Trump approved over dinner with like Michael Flynn without telling anybody. He gave some, you know, just like real like Steve Stephen Miller kind of like rhetoric where it's like you sound like Skeletor, but like in like a sort of an orotund mode talking about how he's etched into eternity. And like all it took was mentioning a troop who was killed in a misbegotten mission that he signed off on. And the whole CNN panel, Cooper very much included, were like, uh, I guess tonight's the night he became president. I don't know. And then like it just sort of kept going at regular intervals from there as he continued to not become president for four years. It was like every now and then he would accidentally set a foot right. And they were always so happy to prop him up at that point. That happened with the uh, the airstrike he launched to get launched against uh, Assad's regime, I guess in 2017. I remember a lot of that on TV, and I remember in the newspapers, you know, saying that. I, I remember sort of background quotes saying, um, you know, from White House officials saying things like, "People don't understand how much it affects Trump emotionally when seeing people gassed and so on." And I was just. I, I remember that as a particular low point. I remember that was uh, also when Brian Williams said like. Like, he made some quote about our beautiful bombs. It was like, a Leonard Cohen quote. It he was! Like, he botched a Leonard... Well, it was also funny because it was, like, it was such a reach. Because, like, like all Leonard Cohen songs, like, I'm sure that that was just a song about a vulva, you know, which is fine. That's, like, you know, he, nobody did it better. But at the same time, just, like, pulling five words out of it because, like, you want to say something neat over missile footage. Like, come on, man. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons, that was the uh, that was the Brian Williams quote while we were bombing another country, which was yeah. great, and that's just just fantastic. I'm I'm so uh, the other thing that that had me freaked out this week, Isaac, was that uh, like I want to laugh at this sort of showy coup attempt, but then I I think about how people laughed when uh, when Trump announced his candidacy in 2015. So I'm like, okay, I'm too freaked out and too traumatized to do the thing where I can sort of laugh this off. I need to take this seriously to make sure that it doesn't happen. Should I, am I right to be, uh, 
you know, to, to make sure I'm not, uh, you know, being too casual about this? You know, I keep going back and forth about things like this. And I guess the thing that I'm having trouble in my mind coming to a conclusion about is sort of how to respond to low probability, high impact events. Is that the phrase? I think it is. Um, you know, I, I think there's probably what a three or 5% chance that Trump really gets these state legislatures to overturn the voting results and, you know, give their electors to him. Um, seems very unlikely to me that we're going through a coup, but I don't know, a 3% chance of this happening seems really, really bad and something we should be prepared for. And I don't, I don't really know how to think about that or to write about it. Um, I was talking about this with my editor, actually, I was doing an interview tangentially related to it. And, you know, you, you don't want to scare people and say this is happening, but you don't want to say it has 0.0% chance of happening. So I, I, I don't know. It's a good question. I think three percent is actually generous. I think it's I think it's less than that. Uh, e- but even if it's even if it's even if there's like a fraction of a percentage of a chance, that's still too much of a chance, obviously. So. Yeah. There's also still the question of of like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just gonna say I don't want to scare people. I don't actually think it's three percent. I think it's probably more like you know half a percent or something. But even so, you know. Aha! I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. You're you're dead now. Your career's over, Chotner, with your bad maths, Chotner. <laughs> But, no, I think I know what you're saying, though. And I just I feel like it's hard to know not just how to write about it, but how to sort of feel about it. That like the especially because feeling about it or feeling anxiety about it is like it's natural, but it is not in any way productive, you know. And so it's the sort of thing where like if I could just say, uh, you know, this is likely not a thing that I need to worry about. And then just like happily like close a door in my brain and just go write a baseball blog like that would be tight to be able to do that. Like, I can't. That's not how people are made. Yeah. I, I, I had been the last, like, four or five nights before last night, I'd been actually going back to reading novels at night rather than looking at my Twitter feed and getting angry. And uh, then last night went back to looking at my Twitter feed and getting angry. So um, I, I hear you. Yeah, because yeah, on Sunday and, like, Monday morning, I was like, I, I was like, I can look at Twitter again and not, like, feel utterly miserable. Like, Saturday was a great day on Twitter. I was like, Wow. Twitter. I was at my son's flag football game when they announced it, and I was mad the game was going on because I was like, I can't look at Twitter right now. I have to actually watch my son be joyfully bound around a field. This is horrible. Yeah. I feel like I missed a party on Saturday, man. We were out of town, and every, I mean, we had a very nice time. Like, we rented a car and were driving around upstate, and like, it was announced when we were at the uh, Kingston, New York farmer's market, and there was like a polite spattering of applause, and I was like, that's all right. Like, this seems about right. But, like, it sounded like it was fucking VE Day in New York City. That there was just, like, people in the street, like, pouring each other drinks and, like, you know, not hugging and keeping a respectable distance and all that. But, like, that sounded fantastic. And, like, we were just doing rustic things and hanging out instead of participating in that. Isaac, where were you when the call came? I was uh, in Oakland uh, getting a baked good in the morning um, at a bakery. And uh, people started yelling and uh, looked at my phone and... It was it was nice. Then was in Oakland, San Francisco, with friends during the day, and it was it was uh, it was lovely. What uh, what baked good did you get? That was that was my question too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I tend to go for scones. Really? Yeah, I'm a scone oh, I'm, guy. I'm surprised. Yeah. yeah. Like a flavored scone? Like does it have to have like little dried cranberries in it? Uh, or fresh ones? Yeah. You know, any any anything available? Any clotted cream? Do you do clotted cream on it? No. Oh, these are tough questions. Yes. Yeah, but what, remind you that he's our guest because we do we do have to ask uh, Isaac 
actual actual questions about his vocation because he's one of the best interviewers, if not the best interviewer, uh, working in media today. So to that end, Isaac, this is these are incredibly <laughs> these are incredibly basic questions that we need to ask you. Uh, but first of all, who have you interviewed most recently, and how did that go? Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say it since it's not up yet. Most recently, I interviewed um, someone about uh, the history of the Department of Justice and how they've dealt with election and election fraud and whether William Barr's actions uh, in the last week are a departure from that, and if so, a dangerous departure. I'll say yes to that. To that end, did you ask that person if we need a Department of Justice at all and why we have one? Uh, I did not. You know, it's um, but but go on with what you were thinking about that, then I'll then I'll respond. Oh, oh, you want me to tell you what I think? I don't know because I've spent the past four years being like, I don't think we need this. Like, I don't think we need ICE. I don't think we need the police. I don't think we need a Department of Homeland Security. So it only makes sense for me to go to, hey, why do we need this Department of Justice at all? Particularly when it's uh, just sitting there waiting to be co-opted by someone like Barr, who's not going to use it uh, for justice at all. He's going to do the precise opposite with it. So I'm all concerned about all these government entities that exist, that exist seemingly now to be turned upon themselves. So that is that is where I'm at. I, so I am unsure of anything right now. I have no confidence in government of any sort, even with Biden coming in. I don't have that much confidence in Biden, even though I'm glad he's a sane person who can speak in complete sense. Yeah, no, I uh, I hear where you're coming from. I I don't I don't I don't I haven't really thought about getting rid of the Department of Justice, and you know, obviously I'm not an expert on this, but having done a fair amount of interviews and reading about immigration over the past few years, I definitely think that uh, DHS feels like it needs to be completely uprooted from the ground and changed. I agree that putting different people in charge of the bureaucracy is is not sufficient. Yeah. I, uh, to that end, let's go back into your interview archive uh, because you are, uh, you're known for asking people tough questions and, and doing it in a way there's, a, there's an art to making it so that it doesn't feel confrontational when you ask it, but you're still asking the hard question. Where it's, you know, I beg your pardon, but I think you might be wrong on this. Like that sort of that sort of very, uh, you know, it's a it's a very subtle but very effective way of interviewing people. Who was your pissiest interview? Who was the most angry at you for asking you for asking tough questions? That's a good question. You know, most people who I interviewed, even when it got somewhat contentious, were very nice and polite, and uh, it was it was fine. I guess this guy Richard Epstein, who was a fellow at the Hoover Institute, who'd written this um, written a piece about how only I think 500 people were going to die from coronavirus, and uh, it had been circulating in Washington in Republican circles. This was back in March and April, and so I interviewed yes. him about yeah. how he got his. Um, and he was, yes. he was very angry yeah. about the interview. Um, but generally, you know, Newt Gingrich got annoyed once, but, you know, generally people are very nice. I think they like talking. They like being asked questions. And uh, even the even the contentious ones generally, I think people are are okay with them. But, yeah, I guess him. He, he, he kind of started yelling at me. Yeah, I think this is the key to what makes your interviews good for me is that you're – and I think this probably does put people at ease. You're very, very well-versed on the works of the people that you're talking to. And so – this means that, like, I think that people like talking about themselves. They like being taken seriously. Like, and so, you know, the fact that you'd read, like, both of Thomas Chatterton Williams's books, like, well enough to be conversant with him about it, I'm sure it was, like, great for him, like, right up until it wasn't. But, yeah, the Epstein one would have been uh, my choice as well, just because he seemed, like, in a way that uh, 
that I think a lot of your subjects do that you're not like bulldogging them or anything like that. It just seemed like a guy that maybe hadn't been pushed on his priors or his uh, like sort of like certainty in a way, like hadn't been pushed by an interviewer or maybe by like a peer seemingly in a very long time. And so like, it wasn't just that he was wrong. It's that the ways in which he was wrong and his projections were the sort of things that like a gentle nudging back into line by like a friend or a colleague could really have like spared him uh, the (laughs) embarrassment of having been as incredibly fucking wrong as he was. Yeah. I, well, that's nice of you to say. Um, I don't know. Was there a question there? Was that, that's very nice. They're kind of. I mean, I guess just in the sense of like the preparation element. Of yeah, it, I, like, you know, I think that um, you know, uh, one thing I have definitely noticed uh, interviewing authors, um, usually not uh, not in uh, contentious ways, is that uh, if if you have the time to read all their stuff, which again is it's sort of a fact of your editors being generous with your time more than anything else and allowing you to prepare and not rushing it, then. They really do appreciate it. Like if you if you um, if you interview an author and you actually read their novel, they, they are so appreciative, and I do think you can get a, a better interview. Uh, not just because you know you'll think of more questions to ask, but it really does open people up in a way and allow them, I think, to expand. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that you know I've really liked my editors at The New Yorker and Slate and The New Republic, where I used to work, just because they've they've always said you know take your time to really research this rather than um, you know doing it without any preparation. Yeah, because the other thing is that if you don't do that research, a lot of times they'll throw you shit that they've already written down or already said to somebody else. Like like when I profiled Al Michaels, I read his autobiography beforehand. And so he was telling me a lot of stuff that was already in the autobiography. So I knew immediately that I couldn't use any of that shit. So it's good in that way where you you know, okay, this is already part of the record, you know, like I can allude to this, but this is not like an actual, this is not actual scoop, like new copy this person's giving me either. Tell, tell me what you thought of Al Michaels differently coming out than when you went in. Uh, no, you know, he was pretty much exactly what I expected because the other thing was that, and I didn't, people asked in the comments about it, like, cause I said that he emailed me out of the blue, uh, and they said, well, why do you do that? And it was because he was an avid, uh, Deadspin reader at the time, and he loved why your team sucks. And so, and he was like, he was a fan. Like, that sounds very, very arrogant. But I, I remember he also said, uh, and again, this is this is all really gross bragging, but he said, I was one of his three favorite writers. The other two were Hunter S. Thompson and Camille Paglia, who he he said, uh, <laughs> he recommended that my daughter, who's 14, read Camille Paglia, because he said, he said, she's feminist, but also anti-feminist, so it's great. And I said, okay, but I didn't I didn't look at that after. Do you think Al Michaels listens to the Red Scare podcast? It is possible that he does, but I don't <laughs> I don't think so. So anyway, anyway, the I'm actually sort of surprised he's no, a Deadspin no. reader. I mean, I I I I've in a lot of affection for Al Michaels, but uh I'm I'm sort of surprised by that. Yeah, it's interesting because the other thing was that I I called him because I, I published the profile. And I said to him beforehand, I said, I'm not, it's not a rim job, so don't expect one. And he said, all right. And I posted it and I was like, well, he still may not like this. And then he FaceTimed me and I was like, well, he might yell at me. And then we had a perfectly lovely conversation. And he was fine with it. He didn't have any problem with it at all. So like, this is very, very unethical, but he was sort of my friend before I profiled him. And I still consider him a friend now. And I'm glad that our, I was able to have it, my cake and eat it too, by doing what I felt was pretty honest and at times scathing profile 
uh, while also maintaining a decent relationship with the subject. Normally, I don't give a fuck how the subject feels. I can't remember if this is in the piece, but did you have the thing in there about when the Black Lives Matter stuff came up on the Sunday Night Football broadcast? I asked him about Black Lives Matter. I can't remember what he said on the on the telecast. Do you remember? It was funny that, that there was something where the players did some sort of protest. I think this was early in the season. And Chris Collinsworth said, like, you know, 30 seconds of, like, well-meaning pablum about, you know, uh, white players need to understand how important these issues are. And Michael's had a very awkward look on his face and then just changed the subject. But it, I, I thought it was funny. Yeah, yeah. He's like, he's a grandpa. Like, he's just, he's just a grandpa. He's gonna, like, he's gonna roll his eyes at shit that he doesn't really understand. It doesn't really have to understand, given where, how old he is and is and what stage of life he's in. And, and of course, uh, what, uh, what socioeconomic strata he's in too. Yeah. So it's and all who his peers are like that part, I think really came through in the piece too, that he's just like maybe the most comfortable American there is. Yeah. He's in like, s- just like financially in terms of like, and so anything that would like ruffle feathers for him is going to be like, it would arrive as like, and not just like an affront, but like almost as sort of an insult. Yep. Like it'd be rude. It's, it's all, it's all, it's very, very contagious. It's hard to, it's hard to uh, feel uncomfortable around the man even though i like again like we have a we have a rule uh that i a friend of mine had where it was like if the profile is if the subject is like 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 30 percent happy with with the profile then you've probably done a bad job like like usually usually if they hate it then you've probably done something right because you've touched on nerve with them but do you feel that way isaac or are you are you less, uh, do you have less hard rules about such things? Um, I want the person to feel it was fair. You know, I, I, I had one, I had one thing where the person accused me of just making up the conversation. And obviously, I mean, I think he was lying, obviously, but I, I don't, that doesn't feel great particularly. But, um, but yeah, I do win sometimes when you see journalists cover a subject or interview them, and then the subject will tweet out the piece, and then they will retweet it. And then I, uh, that always makes me feel a little bit, uh, a little bit like eh, that, that doesn't seem quite right. Yeah. That's, that's icky. Yeah, I agree. That's, that's too back. that's too chummy. That's no good. I also, I, when I did duck dynasty, I had them accuse me of, of doing shit that I, I didn't do. And then TMZ leapt in and said that like they, they published shit about like my interviewing tactics that were also completely off base and wrong. And I said to Harvey Levin, I said, this is incorrect. They said, well, my sources uh, say otherwise. And I was like, I'm the one who did the fucking interview. I I know. Wait. I'm the st- I was there. You were yeah. on TMZ? Yeah, I was on TMZ. I wasn't on the show. I was on their show. Oh, site, I know. So. Did they, what picture did they use for you? Uh, I don't think. No, there wasn't a picture. They didn't even use my name. It was just the GQ reporter. Oh. Who I happened to have been at the time. Yeah. Did uh, that Charity Williams guy, how was he on the phone? Uh, Isaac, because I haven't even heard of this guy until like a few months ago, and now he's everywhere, and he's a total prick. Uh, he was extremely nice, and uh, I, I enjoyed talking to him a lot. Was he okay with your piece on him? Yeah, I, um, he was. He seemed totally fine with it. Well, that's no good. Uh, yeah, I guess no going against my, I, he should have hated it. That would have been better. Um, no, I, <laughs> I guess um, as I said, I think most um, 
most people, I mean, you guys know this, most people like to talk. They like to talk about themselves and their ideas. And I think things have to go pretty far off the rails for them to be really unhappy with an interview. And I don't mean that in like a cynical, all publicity is good publicity way that people are, you know, thinking in the back of their minds they should, they, they want to sell books or something. Um, or, albums or whatever, movie tickets. But uh, I, I just think people generally like getting their opinion out there. I also think because the, also all of your work or the majority of your of your posts are done in a Q&A format. And that almost, um, that almost makes it sort of airtight because I think, in, you know, in a profile uh, or, in, or in a longer uh, sort of in-depth investigation, I think the subject is always wary that their words will be used in ways that they did not intend. And that's like 90% of like Twitter apologies now are like, well, I didn't mean it that way, even though it's their own tweet and stuff like that. But you do have an amazing power as a reporter when you have this copy from an interview in their hands and you can edit it kind of any way you want. And you can, you can also, if you're, if you're not ethical, you can frame it any way you want. Uh, and you could, and you can do it in ways that might garner eyeballs, but in, uh, but may not really accurately reflect the uh, you know the situation on the ground when you were interviewing that person at the time, but to do it in a straight Q and A format and to have their words there and it's just their words, I think that helps them understand. Okay, yeah, I, that's what I said. I remember being there. So it's really the only way that they can get you is to to say that they actually didn't say what they said, which which is always a fun lie to hear from people. Yeah, no, I, I that's that's really only happened once, and I I don't um, where someone said I never said all that stuff, but I don't, um, uh, and obviously the case of it, so it's not it's not a concern, but um, that I, I do I agree. I think if I'd been doing eight years of profiles of people, um, that would happen more often. People would say, but yeah, there's only I mean, obviously the Q and As are edited somewhat, but it's it's hard to say. We would have to really do some dishonest editing to make it appear that, you know, people didn't say things right. that they said or something. Do you think we've, like, outgrown celebrity profiles as a general rule? Like, this is as much for Drew as it is for Isaac. I hate them so much. And I don't know. Yeah. Like, I used to love them, and now I hate them. And I don't know if that's – I'm changed, I'm different, or – It does feel like the world's kind of changed, right? Like, that there's, like, not room for that kind of, like, plummy reverence – or like just like cleverly tweaking the form or whatever. Like everybody's just got bigger problems now than like, you know, you get one dinner with Penelope Cruz and you just spend like a thousand <laughs> words describing her mouth. Like the, we're surely on the other side. The Chris of that, Jones right? profile where she yeah. where, where she's eating the steak and he's like, oh, she's fucking the steak with her mouth. <laughs> it's all just like I just I don't know. I mean, I guess in some ways it's a sad thing because like those I associate those with like big glossy magazines with like big budgets and stuff like that and like I, you know we don't necessarily have those they don't exist either. anymore man right but like, i also feel like that's of all the things to leave in the past the idea of like i don't like swaggering writing about famous people in a way that's designed to like sort of draw attention to the writer as much as the subject like maybe we don't need that like going forward i agree i i'm totally sick of it i can't i i, I hate them so much and uh I, I will not mention uh, Drew's former employer who did a lot of these stories, but um, some of them very well. But when I read them now, um, I, I just uh, I, I can't take them. But yeah, but, you know, I, I don't know. We should go back and read these celebrity profiles from GQ and Esquire and the Times Magazine and places like that. Vanity Fair, you know, from 20 years ago and see how they read now. But when I read them now, I just I, I can't. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the thing of the male writer going to see the attractive female movie star or something is has its own uh has its own kind of uncomfortability that feels especially awful now 
Yeah. yeah, I think there are. I think there are ones that hold up. Like anything by Chris Heath holds up, and like Taffy, whether she was at GQ or you know, or I should say Taffy Taffy Ackner Brodesser. I should uh, say her last name for crying out loud at, at the New York Times. Like we I think there, Taffy. I think there Huge are people who are who who are very skilled at it and do it in ways that do not feel like puffery. But in general, it's it's usually a horse trade. It's usually you know I'm going to do the profile. But I like the subject. Like I was told a long ago that really they only give a shit if the if the pictures are nice, and that's pretty much it. Well, but don't don't you think with 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 Kathy Ackner's celebrity profiles that her pieces, whether someone likes them or doesn't like them, are coming from a place of being bored with celebrity profiles too? Yeah, I think there's. Well, no, I mean I think in some ways they're similar to celebrity profiles of old, but in other ways. And sometimes she puts herself at the center of them uh, in ways which I think people will like or not like. But it also seems to me that I, I think she mentions this occasionally. She just seems incredibly bored with the genre and sort of feels like it can't go on the way it's been. And so it needs to be kind of changed in some way. I remember when I did the uh, the Al Michaels profile, Barry edited it because the first thing uh, that I mentioned was us. Like it's, I started at the at the uh, the breakfast table. Yeah, yeah, at lunch or breakfast or whatever. And he was like, he's like, every fucking profile starts this way. Don't do this. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And another time I profiled Chris Pratt and the opening was that like he picked me up in his truck without like, without a publicist, without a manager and all that stuff. It was just two bros being bros. And my, and before I even filed it, Justin Halpern, my friend was like, did you do the thing where, you know, you say like, oh, he picked me up himself without anybody... <laughs> without anybody else there. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly what I did. Oh no. It's, um, I, I did a lot of like uh, long interviews with authors, you know, before COVID that would sort of try to function as profiles with, you know, a thousand word intro and then the Q and A. And I right. just thinking right. back to them, I mean, there, there are one or two maybe that I think are good, but like, they're so hard to do. And in a way they sort of function the way the opening anecdote of a profile does. And, you know, it just felt like I was hitting the same kind of roadblocks of how to do this. Um, it's such a tough thing to do. Yeah. It's, it's practically a format by now. Let's take a break and come right back. Isaac, do you want to stick around and talk some sports and, uh, and, and answer some fun bad questions? Or you got to go. No, that's fine. All right. We're going to take a break and come right back. We're back. And sports are back. Uh, Isaac, do you have a sports rooting uh, interest? Yeah, I'm a huge Houston Rockets fan. Ah, well, you've had you've had yourself quite an off season then, because yeah, because Mike D'Antoni is gone, and uh, it just came out today that uh, Russell Westbrook and James Harden are not necessarily pleased with the direction of the franchise. Um, so, so in the club. Can you? Yeah. yeah, I was gonna say, like, why did they mention why they weren't pleased with it? Because yeah, they're owned by <laughs> they're owned by a wildcatting asshole named Tillman Fertitta, who is a cheapskate and a Trump guy, and really just I think he I think more than the other NBA owners, and you can correct me on this, Isaac, but I think he was the one who was basically like, yeah, I don't want to do a bubble, I just want to start opening arenas and everything like right now, like <laughs> like in like in April 2020 and shit like that. So are you? Uh, like this team can't continue going on the way that it, it is like they can't move Harden obviously because he makes a bazillion dollars a year, but they'll probably move Westbrook. Right. I mean, I think it would be harder to move Westbrook in a way he's got, uh, 
he's not as good and his contract is almost as big. This is true. This is true. And they don't have uh, Daryl Morey anymore. I, I'm not sure they should trade Harden. I, you know, trading Westbrook would be fine with me for pieces, but trading Harden, eh, I don't know. It's also just hard with them. They're in this position. I sort of had this feeling with the Mets back, you know, under previous ownership, uh, like 10 days ago, that like when they don't have enough money to actually try to move the team forward, like at some point, like what are you cheering for? You know, the idea of like, like, dignity and stasis and like, you know, some competitive, like, it's not like you need them to win a, a championship. Maybe that's how you approach it or whatever. But at this point, it seems like the main tension with the Rockets is like how they go about taking apart this very good and very interesting roster that they built and like how badly they do it, which is not a great feeling as a fan. Uh, I have nothing to add. No, that's, that's exactly right. Yes. Are you sad Maury is gone or do you think it was the right thing for them to part ways? Oh, no, I'm definitely sad he was gone. I'm sad D'Antoni's gone, too. Um, I, I don't – I mean, I, I think that Fertitta pissed off D'Antoni so much that this was kind of inevitable. As far as I can tell, D'Antoni still had pretty good relationships with uh, the club, you know, with the team. Um, and, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big Daryl Morey fan. Um, obviously, he's not been 100% perfect as no GM is, but clearly I think one of the three or four best GMs of the last few decades and, I, you know, probably one of the most important people to – basketball history at this point um just an amazing amazing guy i think and uh i'm sad he's gone could you do me a favor and uh interview someone in charge of college football to ask why college football uh is currently existing because as we write this uh half the sec games coming this weekend are have been canceled lsu bama's been canceled a&m tennessee mississippi state auburn and georgia missouri mississippi state coached by mike leach who has gone completely off the deep end (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yet, like, in the most boring way imaginable. Yeah, just just an awful dad of a coach. And uh, so I want to ask you, uh, Isaac, you have not spoken to anybody in charge of college football since COVID began. Do you have any plans to? You know, I have not been following the college football story much. I need to start uh, following it more. I, uh, I defer to you on it. It's basically the story of the country's failure in COVID, sort of, but, like, with big TV contracts attached. But it's, like, sort of a, like not necessarily well-intentioned denial uh, coupled with these weird, like, like rules and plans, but that are, which are not really like grounded in anything like an observable reality. And then just sort of like hoping that uh, it would all just somehow work because like you're the university of Florida and then inevitably it does not. Yeah. LSU had, you had fans come to the games. So long as they answered four questions on a goddamn questionnaire on an app, that was like, do you have COVID? No. Okay, you can come in. And then they got rid of the questionnaire, and you don't even have to do that anymore to oh. go to their fucking games. Just disgusting. So, it's anyway. the theater of all this that gets me. No, it's sort of surreal. I had this moment a couple days ago, or yesterday, where I saw a headline. It was like, New Jersey moves to limit indoor dining. And I thought, wait, New Jersey has indoor dining? Yeah, like limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, they did that here in uh, in Maryland, too, where they were like, we're going to move it down from 75% to 50%. And I was like, that's not enough. It shouldn't yeah. be anybody. That's It's such a classic, like, 2020 response to this shit, too, though, because it's like you're somehow, like, cutting a deal. You're like, all right, well, I can live with 30. Can you live with 30? And then it's like, pandemic does not answer because is virus. And you right. just have to fucking deal with it. Like, that shit sucks. Of course it doesn't work. Uh, and also the NBA wants to come back. Uh, they already they agreed to come back next month. And I believe that they still intend to bring fans back. Isaac, do you agree with their 
uh, intention of bringing fans back? Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not a not a epidemiologist or whatever, but um, I, uh, no. So I, 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 no, no, I'm not. Um, I mean, I'm excited as a fan that the season's going to be coming back, but it seems like they're just, you know, going for money, which I understand, I suppose, but I don't know. It seems like they're going to, they're doing, making the same mistakes that everyone has been. Yep. Yeah. It's weird it's because to... they, they got the bubble right. And then, uh, but they were like, okay, we did that. Now we're entitled to make all the same horrible mistakes that the NFL and college football just made. So one thing that I've heard that they're going to do, which I do not understand why they do not do in the course of a normal season. Uh, this is not to defend the NBA because I agree with what you just said, which is have just travel to like a certain region and play all your games. I never understood why, like, you know, the Rockets or the Mavericks would fly to New York and play the Nets. And then two months later, fly to New York and play the Knicks. And it was like, you can't all do that. You can't have one East Coast trip and one West Coast. That shit has frustrated me for my entire life. And I don't know. I always it's very gratifying to hear it from like a high functioning adult, because it was always for me. I like assumed that it had some sort of like that it was basically tied into like the way that I go to the grocery store where I'm like, well, you don't want to go back because then that's inefficient. Like, so you get the pasta on the way to get the milk as opposed to milk, then pasta, because what are you, an idiot? Yeah. And I remember, uh, I believe it was Baxter Holmes did a big piece at ESPN, basically saying that the NBA players had a sleep crisis as a result of this. Like, like players were like, like actively having health problems because they weren't getting enough sleep because of these back to backs, you know, where they're in like Memphis one, that night and then like Portland the next and like and the schedule was so was so grueling and people don't ever have sympathy or can relate to it because they're just like oh well they get paid millions of dollars to play a game and they're just fucking stupid about it but the, the these guys did not have any time to rest and were actively having like physiological issues as a result so I think I'm with you that they should they should have done these clusters a long time ago and I really do hope they do it in 2020 now I was going to say, you know, it's like the, the, the West and the East only play each other once on each other's home court. So if you're playing the Atlantic Division, why you wouldn't just play Toronto, Boston, New York, New Jersey? Um, what's the team I'm forgetting? Uh, Philadelphia. You know, it just it, it makes no sense on one trip. Anyway. They used to have them do that in uh, – in the, I remember when I was younger, it seemed like teams would have to do, like, the Texas swing. Yep. And so, like, they would – the Nets would play, like – the Mavs, the Rockets, then they'd, you know, whatever, play the Suns or something like that, and this or this and then the Spurs. But it was like it did seem like it was regional. But now, yeah, there is like the more like contemporary NBA schedule has a lot of like totally unmotivated cross-country flights or like weird back-to-backs where you like leave Miami at one in the morning and get into Cleveland and then play a game 16 hours later. Like that just seems gratuitous. Could you do a baseball thing? Could you yeah. do a baseball thing where you do like a two or three game series at one? That's what they're talking about. This, that like that's what they're talking about. That like the Lakers would play Denver like three times in Denver, and so so you'd have to do more because the home road thing would be different rather than playing Denver twice. Right. And, you're, and then you know some other team would come to you and play three times, and you know something like that. I mean, it all feels kind of doomed, just given this. You know where we are with and in COVID right now. But at the same time, like I, I do give the NBA credit, especially, you know, with the bubble and stuff like that, they have been more willing to try new things. I hope they do this. Cause it seems like the one thing that they tried that other leagues and sports were not trying, like fucking worked. Like they delivered a good product and they kept people safe. Like that, 
you know, they didn't get necessarily the ratings that they wanted, but that's because it was being played at like a time when, you know, a body is not used to watching basketball. It's because I think they be, were too woke, Raw. It's because, yes, I was going to say, sorry, my bad. It's because of, uh, mm, like, I'll just say people yelling at me on Twitter is why their ratings weren't good. <laughs> but the, like, I would love to see them try to do stuff like this. Like, any sort of response beyond just, like, putting your head down and trying to fucking bull through it with the sheer force of, like, your TV contracts and your delusion is, like, anything would be better than that. Isaac, I have a fun bag question for you before we let you go. You ready for a fun bag question? I am. All right. This is from Sam. He writes in, are there any foods that are better when stale? Any foods that are better to you when stale, Isaac? Good question. It's tough, right? I, I, I know I, when I, when I read it, I knew there was something and it was, and no pun intended, it was on the tip of my tongue and I couldn't, Think of it, and I still can't think of it right now. I'm like, maybe Captain Crunch. Oh, I don't know. Cereal seems like it would be a tough bet. Like the only s- thing I can think of is like Swedish fish. Do oh, I like stale? that. They do. Like they get sort of a like a harder texture on the outside, and then they're still kind of like yielding and uh, high fructose corn syrup on the inside. So you get a little bit of a textural contrast you don't ordinarily get. Oh, oh, I, I have a I have a version of that the opposite way, which is that. Uh, I'll only eat fruit if it's like super, super, super unripe. I do not like ripe fruit when it's when it's mushy. I think it's disgusting. Really, yeah, I can, I'm kind of with you to a certain extent on that. Like, I don't I, like I I don't like things that are like way like you know just like billiard ball hard like a peach like that. But like, I definitely eating a peach that's a peach that could like hold someone. It's so hard, like a baseball. That's what I that's <laughs> basically what I something that should have like spalding written between seams on it. So like, it's reasonable. So all right, how how ripe is acceptable to you. Like if a pear has any give when you touch it, is that bad? Isaac? Yes. In fact, and no one's ever been able to buy fruit from me that was acceptable. Like my parents, people I've dated, friends, I just won't eat it. It, it, They'll say, oh, I got it. You know, I got, I got a pear. I'm sure this one's not ripe enough. No, that's a, that's fantastic. That's a fantastic food hang up that I, that I am genuinely curious and interested in. I'm not even going to, I'm going to get torture for it. I think it's very interesting. Yeah. As someone who likes uh, things that are too sour, I'm kind of with you sometimes, like kiwi or whatever, if it's too hard. Well, you get, you get, you can get a tart ass kiwi if it's, you can get an extremely tart ass kiwi, Drew. That's right. This is a better, this is a better food hang up than Michael Schur hates hot fruit. And I, I find that to be an utterly baffling. So he like won't eat pies? Right. Right. He thinks that's fucked up. Yeah. I think it's all disgusting. I'm like, what about like an apple crisp? He's like, no, it's gross. I was like, I was like, what? Like it's good. What's what about hot fruit for you, Isaac? Are you all right with hot fruit? Uh, yeah, it's okay. I you know pies are pies are fine. Yeah, pies pie. All right. So where do you get your fruit? I know we have to end. I'm just curious. Where do you go to get <laughs> a suitably firm? There's a market near my house, and they for some reason put fruit out when it's when it's before it's ripe, and the other markets don't have it. I don't know. I just go to the same place. Do you? Do you only eat green bananas? If it's yellow, is that bad? I don't eat bananas, really, but if I did, only green. Oh, just, we should have made the whole podcast about this. Yeah, I also don't eat bananas, but that's, again, that's a whole other podcast. That's an emergency podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Banana related. I'll never forget Megan. Are we not going to talk about uh, how many pieces you've written about Bill Simmons? Is that not going to come up? 
Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we know you can you can you can chotner me about about Bill Simmons because I uh, I want to know why so many Bill Simmons pieces. What is it inside driving you to keep writing these Bill Simmons pieces? And then that's not a criticism. I've, I'm legitimately curious. I'm offended as someone who, you know, who read him religiously in 1999, 2000 and stuff like that and followed the track of his career that he became this, that he seemed to be someone who like was writing the way I would want a sports writer to write like 10 or 15 years ago. And instead of taking that and becoming, and he became very popular, of course, you know, rather than growing from there and becoming a better writer, maybe a novelist, maybe someone who writes uh, television shows, stuff like that. He instead really just wanted to be like a a, a replacement level mogul instead. Yeah, like he like first of all, he never he never became self aware that like the Boston shit got annoying, which I do shit that gets annoying too. But at least I you know I no don't yeah, say don't yeah. say that. But anyway, so we're back, we're back. So <laughs> so uh, the, there's that fact the the fact that he never really got over himself. And by all accounts, acted like a spoiled dickhead when he was at ESPN all the time. Does not seem to have much respect or even recognition of his authority at the ringer. And it's so weird because, you know, the people that I've talked to who have worked for him said he's a good boss. Like, he he'll lets, pe- lets people do what they want. He hires good people. He clearly has good taste and talent. Uh, and yet, they're all like trophies on his shelf. He doesn't actually, like, he hires them and he likes, you know, he likes, he'll, he gives them freedom but he doesn't actually seem to be all that interested in them at all. He only seems to be interested in like going on a podcast with Ryan Rossillo and like, and saying that like, I don't know, like you can't make jokes about women uh, being lame anymore. Like that's kind of like his thing. So it's, it's disappointing that he started off so promising and has become this. And it is an eternal source of rage for me because he has $250 million now and I don't. So that's yeah. why Isaac. Were you, did you read him uh, Isaac when you were, like when he was starting out or, you know, even before the, the, um, Grantland days. So I remember I had this similar sort of response to Drew. Like there's something, there's, it's kind of a betrayal in the fact that he stopped trying to get better, but maybe it's just that like I, my taste changed and he just didn't change at all. But so that's sort of what I was wondering because, you know, I, we were talking about celebrity profiles now. Like I wonder if I went back and I read Bill Simmons from 2003, how it would, how it would read to me. Um, I mean, I do think he deserves credit for some sort of combining sports and pop culture in writing, which I feel like became sort of a trope, but was sort of fun when it started. And I don't totally blame right, him right. for that. But I also think it would probably read pretty tiresome now. I don't know. It reads. It reads bad. He also, um, but it was. It was sort of like a, you know, it was it was proto blogging. It was, you know, it was it was shooting the shit, but on paper, and that was very refreshing and good. But again, he never grew past that. He never. The only profile I ever, ever read that he wrote was of Phil Jackson, which was sort of good in parts, but he had not written a profile before. So, you know, it had it had rookie mistakes in it. I remember reading when he did a Baron Davis, of all people. Um, I think during Dav- right after Davis had signed with the Clips, when Simmons was still kind of like leaning into his identity as a Clippers fan. And I remember it being pretty good. Again, as Isaac said, like all of this stuff is years in the past. I have not gone back and reread it. But it was, I remember reading at the time and being like, good for you, man. Like, way to fucking spend time with a guy and take notes and observe things and write a story. Like, but I guess he didn't want to do that, which is, you know, it's, to be fair, it's hard. And also it's a, you know, it's a dumb type of story to write as we established earlier. But it just seemed to me that, that he seemed like an antidote to the old school 
sports writers that he was rebelling against yeah. and that I hated, and then he became them. And that was what yeah. disappointed me. Yeah. It is also, though, your point about him writing everything definitely holds up. Like, he just did too much. No, I mean, I, I think that's right. I, I, um, I, I, he also sort of became anti-staff in a way that, you know, is sort of as a, a signal of the way in which he sort of become the way the old-time guys became, which is that he started out, yeah. I think, more opposed to that. And, you know, I, which I think is a – well, this is a larger conversation, but it seems to have infected a lot of sports commentary in negative ways. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with that. Isaac, Can I just tell a, a Simmons thing before we go yeah. that a friend sent me that I had completely forgotten about? Everybody has these weird, like, Simmons-y ticks from, like, the old mailbag columns, which were all, like, 5,000 words long, and, like, I, I didn't finish all of them. And a friend DM me, he was like, did you ever, are you familiar with, like, Simmons's issues with Mr. Holland's opus? And I was not. And there is buried in some fun bag, like, not just like a long uh, sort of unpacking of how Mr. Holland of Mr. Holland's opus fame is a dick, but it is like, it is wounded. Like it is like Mr. Holland hurt Simmons himself. <laughs> it is like as emotional as any of writing that I've seen him do. And it's all about how like Richard Dreyfus betrayed the trust of his family and was really selfish. <laughs> this is the actual Mr. Holland that he's about, he's bitching about or the movie. No, the movie, the movie where he's kind of like, what? Is, and also, like, is this music even good? I don't think so. Like, just but like really leaning into it. It's got a delightful, weird glimmer of humanity showing through. Oh my god, Isaac, you've been a fantastic guest, and I want to have you on again so I can ask you about unripe fruit. Will you come back sometime? Uh, yeah, anytime. It was, it was it was a pleasure to do it. Thanks for having me. All yeah, right, uh, Isaac, I'm going to let you go, and then we're going to wrap up the show uh, with another break. Back to wrap up the show. You're right to drink from the poison chalice, Roth. I, th I thought I would escape. No, but, you um, wouldn't. No. Uh, this is Howard. Isaac tried to jump on that grenade for us and did not. No, All right, let's this, hear it. this is Howard Kurtz, who used to be with CNN. Now he's with Fox, and he tweeted today from Trump's GSA barring Biden transition officials from federal buildings to Whoopi Goldberg telling his voters <laughs> to suck it up. Both sides are playing the politics of payback. Why the anger still rages and the election feels endless. That's not it, it's, though. I think it's about, I don't know. I think that's pretty That's pretty easy to defend. It's about a 50-50 split to me in terms of how the culture is coarsened between the president of the United States and Whoopi Goldberg. I'd say that both bear some responsibility, probably about 50%. And what about Bette Midler? Why don't we talk about Bette Midler's? We don't talk, we're not allowed because it's double standard with her very curly hair that I don't like and is not flattering. But uh, so he got Richard into oblivion and then he doubled down. He said, gee. I'd really prefer people react to the whole column about anger and payback on both sides rather than a tweet summary. But I guess that's not how Twitter works. It always, so good. Everybody, oh, every double down is the the lady with her hands up emoji. Like, well, I guess people are just dicks to me, even though I'm trying to be a nice person. Here I am being canceled just for being stupid and providing a summary of my story that clearly <laughs> reflects that the story is also stupid. It was! It was! I saw it! It was worse than the fucking tweet. What's the drill tweet that's like <laughs> keep shouting shut the fuck up at me? It only makes my opinions worse. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> that's what we're dealing with here. Ah, uh, your mashup! You're ready for the mashup! 
Oh my god, I'm all of the I'm really like I thought I had gotten all the way through this, and now you're just like, do you want to hop in this uh, pile of dog <laughs> yeah. shit with me? Good, let's no do it. Sing to me. Love now for shame. Rise up behind me, no more pain. 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 That's good. That's good. All right, terrific. That's a wrap. I don't know either half of that, but you sounded pretty good the first time. Thank you. Like, that was like decent singing, I think, by by the standards that you have brought to this beloved segment. Uh, you sounded pretty tight there. Well, who am I hearing? Uh, you're going to get the full boomer out of me. That is my favorite uh, song by the Black Crows. That's Wiser Time. Uh, definitely wow. segueing tastefully into uh, You Know You're Right by Nirvana, which was uh, the Lost track uh, that came out like they... Um, after all the legal wrangling, like in 1999 or 2000, because Cobain died in 1994, they released a, uh, a compilation album of everything remastered. And that was the, uh, the sort of lost single that they yeah, included. That on. was the one that was more familiar to me. Like, I think if I'd given it more time, I might've come closer. The Black Crows thing, I got to say, that's, uh, some hardcore Drew shit. Yeah. And I was not there. I <laughs> was not able to get at your level on that one, but. Well then let's, let's. Let's reward you with the guy of the week. And in Ooh. honor of the sale of the Mets, your guy of the week is Tr- Steve Traxel. Hoke. Oh, wow. Uh, See? Yeah. See, isn't that, what a isn't that treasured memory that is? Mm. So I have had bad luck always going to Mets games with, for the longest time, uh, my friends and I and, and Kate and I uh, would get like one of those like seven game season ticket packages where, you know, you get some games and like some of them are good and some of them are against the Marlins and, you know, it strikes and gutters, but you don't know what you're going to get. And I had like the time that we had a seven game pack, I saw Victor Zambrano start five times. And then one year, I swear, I feel like I saw like Traxel start six <laughs> of seven times. <laughs> he was took fucking forever to throw like a pitch oh, and I he didn't strike pitches. anybody out. And he was like, good. Like the team was in the games. It wasn't the sort of thing where you could be like, oh, fuck it. I'm leaving. Because like, he was, he kept them in the game. He won a pennant with them. In the most boring possible way. They won a pennant with him pitching. So, yeah. Been, yeah pitchers who take he's too a, long, I hate. Like He's a guy that also, like, I discovered, like, somebody sent me his, like, Twitter feed. And, you know, it's what you'd expect. Like, he's, like, just a, a big Fox guy or whatever. But he's, I think it's the dignified type of retired athlete online chud in that he's, like, he doesn't have a lot of followers, you know, and he's just kind of, like, he's not doing it that much. Like, it's not the sort of thing where, like, like Derek Anderson, the guy that the like former Browns and, and Panthers quarterback is like, seems troubled yeah, on there. He's nuts. Like he's like Q curious yep. or curious. Yep. He's insane. But, but Steve Traxel's just a guy that like periodically watches TV and is like, oh, what is this bullshit? And then he just like goes out and plays 36 holes. And like, that's fine. Like whatever, you earned it, man. It's not a bad life. So we, we honor you, Steve Traxel, and we hope that new Mets owner Steve Cohen treats you as well as the Wilpons treated uh, you back. <laughs> Brandon Nix is a producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. And our theme song was composed and played by the immortal Kirk Hamilton. You can get ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, yes, us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to us at Defector.com too. And... Get your merch at the Distraction Store and at the Defector Store if you want a t-shirt with Roth on it that says gross gas because he knows everybody loves it. 
there's other t-shirts that don't have me on it. You can get those too. That's, Same price. That's, that's in some cases cheaper. That's the best shirt and it's the best selling. You should buy. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Thanks, Roth. Bye. Yeah. Bye.